This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. So this is Romans 1, chapter 1, verse 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, 
Do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realising that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favouritism. Wow. Um, That's the sort of passage that sometimes you get in late night talk shows that Christians, angry Christians, ring up and read out and say, look at the world, what a mess it is. (laughs) And as you hear it read, you feel how countercultural it is. And I guess if we were cherry-picking passages, we'd say, well, let's just jump through that one. We'll go on to another nice one. But here we are. So um, let me uh, just pray, and then let's go to work. Father, we just pray as we've uh, read through those verses. Lord, we feel the, because of our culture, feel the uh, shocking challenge of them. Uh, We feel uh, it makes us judge you, and it makes us judge ourselves, and we don't feel very loved at all. And, Lord, I, I, we understand how the Romans and Jews first who heard that passage would have felt the same. So we pray, Lord, as we dig into this passage that we wouldn't find a dark and vicious and pernicious God, but, Lord, we'd find a God of love and grace and truth. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've uh, ever been across to Montpellier Gardens um, uh, a few years back. There used to be a very large beech tree uh, that used to sit just this side of the gardens, um, a copper beech tree, been there for over 200 years. And um, what started to happen to that beech tree was, uh, it, it, I think one day, uh, for, for no reason, it wasn't even windy day, for no apparent reason, one of the branches fell off, and obviously people in the park and, and the council thought, well, this is dangerous. So what they did is they got some tree surgeons, some specialists to, to look at this tree, and they realised that it got a fungal infection that had drawn up through the roots and that had got into the core of the tree. So the tree looked outside magnificent. On the inside, it was this rotten tree that was basically in danger to uh, falling over and, and hitting other people. Uh, and so what happened is they, they, they deemed it unsafe. And in August of um, 2014, the, the tree was cut down. And, um, you know, people felt sad about that tree, but people understood that actually the tree was rotten on the inside. And it was only a matter of time before it did damage to somebody. And I think Paul here is looking at the, um, the culture of the day, the Roman uh, and culture of the day, and, and doing the same thing. He's looking at what looked a, a, gr- a grand tree. He's looking at the, you can see, you know, you can imagine the, he's never been, but you'll have heard stories of the, the Colosseum from Aquila and Priscilla and the, the great arches and the great culture and you think yeah what a high you know high culture we've got looks brilliant like this massive copper beech tree but inside he's saying there's something very rotten about it and actually 
something's got to be done about it. And, and what he does in this passage is he highlights what's rotten about the tree uh, and then suggests uh, in the later part of the passage that God's going to bring an axe and cut it all down. And, um, and I think that you, you've got to understand the way that Paul goes about this kind of is that he, he addresses the audience not primarily, he's not addressing us, he's primarily addressing the audience there. He's uh, talking to what is predominantly a, a, a Roman church, a Gentile church, a non-Jewish church. It used to be, it had been a Jewish predominantly church, uh, and the Jew, those Jews had been very moral and their culture had kept the law, uh, and, and they'd been very moral. And then uh, gradually, uh, Romans become Christians, and gradually the church uh, becomes a majority church of um, of Gentiles, of Romans, partly with that because the Jews were expelled and had to come back, but that, uh, we talked about that last week. So basically what he's got is he's got Jews and, and Romans in his uh, audience, and, and basically they developed a bit of a finger-pointing culture, as I said last week, that uh, they were calling each other weak and strong, and they're pointing fingers at each other, and basically the Jews pointed the fingers at the Romans because basically the Jewish culture said that uh, if you were touched and a Gentile, you became unclean. You became spiritually unclean. And, and that you weren't to associate with Gentiles. So you can imagine if that had been your culture and you're sitting in church or you're in a small ch- house church uh, in Rome with somebody from that background. It's obviously challenging your cultural presuppositions all the time. And you're thinking these Romans come in with their dirty, filthy culture into our pure Jewish culture, brings tension. The, the Romans, however, had been taught by their philosophers, uh, Cicero and Seneca, that the customs of the most accursed nation, that was the Jewish nation, was against the glory of the emperor, the empire, the dignity of Rome. And so you've got this other thing. The Romans are saying the thing about the Jews is everything they stand to is, is totally the opposite of what we stand for. And so you've got this tension. And you think that Paul kind of would go into a nice course in race relations. It's a, he'd take them to some moderation and say, look Jews, you need to think more positively about your Roman friends. Uh, they're in the same church. And Romans, you need to think more positively about, about that. But actually, what he does do is he actually uh, says to them, no, that Jesus is pointing uh, at both of them. They've been pointing at each other, but in one sense, Jesus is pointing at both of them. He's a, I know we don't like finger pointing, but bear with me, but Jesus is pointing the finger at them. He's Jesus, who's the Lord of all, as we said last week, not the Emperor of Rome, not Nero, the Emperor of Rome, but Jesus, who's the Lord, is pointing the finger at all of them and say, this is the problem with the world we've made. This is the problem that's wrong with you. So, and he starts by pointing the finger first at the uh, at the Gentiles, he starts first uh, with the Romans. Because the Romans would have had, basically most of the Romans, a few of them obviously to become Christians, would have heard about Yahweh, uh, the Jewish God, and Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, who was the Son of God, who'd come to earth to show who God li- was like, to reveal what God was like. They'd have kind of got that. But most Romans out there in the world wouldn't have had a clue. But he, he, throws, the, the, he throws his kind of uh, uh, range wide, as it were, and says, look, Romans... Even if you've not heard about God, you've got no excuse. You kind of know. You kind of know. In your culture, you know that there's a God. And what he does first is he, uh, he, uh, he talks about the creation. So he says, what may be known about God is plain to them. This is the Romans, the Roman world who didn't know anything about Yahweh. What may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. And he tells you how. For the since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities 
and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what is made, so people without excuse. What he's saying is you can understand something of God. You can't necessarily understand the love of God, uh, but you can understand his divine power and something of his divine nature. You can understand that God is God from creation. What he's saying is that if you look out at the stars at night, the explanation perhaps is there's a creator. If you look at the, the human body, the explanation is there's a creator. If you look at the, the world that's created, the explanation is that there's a creator. Now, Roman culture would have, he's saying, he's suppressed that truth. They'd say, no, there is no creator. The God, is, God is not the creator. And you could understand them saying that. You could understand them saying, yeah, because obviously they don't understand about science and they don't understand about that. And so therefore, they, they, you know, they, they'd say, oh, well, maybe God, maybe the answer is God. But, but they didn't act like there was a creator. They act like, well, you know, we don't know what it is. We act like there's no creator. In other words, he says to suppress the truth about God, the creator. And I think you could say, well, in our world, in our culture, there's much more reason to suppress the truth about God because we've got science. There's much more reason to suppress the truth about God because we're not the superstitious Romans who didn't have much science. We're the scientific generation, and it's obvious there is no God, isn't it? It's obvious there's no God. You only have to read scientific textbooks. You only have to read, watch programs on TV. It's obvious there's no God. It's interesting, I uh, watched a program uh, on uh, BBC Four. That's where the geeks watch TV, by the way, if you watch uh, BBC Four. It's all documentaries, and there was this documentary called The Wonderful World of Blood. Only people like me would watch that. <laughs> the Wonderful World of Blood. Uh, if you can get it on iPlayer, amazing, amazing program. Uh, the guy kind of takes his blood out, he eats it, he goes in an oxygen chamber, he goes white water rafting, he's doing all this thing with uh, talking about blood. And, um, and all the way through, he's going, wow, isn't blood amazing? So at one time, he talks about platelets. Who knows what platelets are? Where's Will? Yes. Platelets are those things that make your blood clot. And he talks about how when there's a cut, even if you scratch yourself, you know, even before there's a cut, the body's kind of saying, there's, boop, 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 there's going to be a cut, and they're sending these platelets, and then when there's cut, they react with the air, and they create this incredible lattice that makes you don't bleed to death. And he's going, wow, isn't it amazing? And then he sits in an oxygen chamber, uh, pretending to be at altitude with low oxygen. And after four hours, he says, wow, my body is already starting to make more red blood cells, EPO, they call it. And the body, after four hours, reacts. After a month, you bought the amount, your red blood cell count, your, your VO max is different. You can be, you're fitter. And he talked about kind of white water rafting and how there's, the body's realising, this is not what we do normally. <laughs> we normally sit in front of the TV. We're white water rafting and he's up and down and bouncing around. And he says, what's happening? His body starts to react ready for an emergency. His blood starts to change ready for an emergency. If he gets cut or he gets unconscious. And all the way through they're going, wow, isn't that wonderful? But there was one thing that I found most interesting. They talked about the curvature of the, uh, the arteries in your body. You know, you think, well, the, lo- the quickest distance between my heart and my brain will be a straight line. But the, the aorta doesn't kind of do that. It kind of weaves around. Well, I don't know exactly, but weights where it goes. But it's kind of curved. And this was amazing. They said, what happens is the curves in your arteries are there to make the blood flow perfectly helicoidally spirally, which means the, the, the surface of the blood vessels don't wear out 
and the blood flows as fast as possible. And what they said is, we've invented these stents, you know, these things that go in your veins. And we used to have straight ones. And guys at Imperial College have created these helicoidal ones that make the blood flow better. And what they said is, they both looked at each other, this guy from Imperial and the guy that's presenting, they went, wow, isn't the wonder of evolution amazing? And they did it again and again and again. Platelets, wow, white blood cells, wow, wow, wow. And I'm thinking... There might be another conclusion here. There might be another conclusion. Because I'm going, wow, isn't God amazing? But our society is going, whoa, isn't evolution amazing? We suppress the truth about God. We think we're wise. There might be another reason, but we're not talking about it. No, isn't evolution amazing? And it says they claim to be wise. Loads of cultures claim to be wise. Roman culture, Greek culture, Babylonian, Egyptian culture. Every culture has claimed to be wise. We claim to be wise. Western culture, we claim to be wise. We say, well, we live in this world of science, the the space-time universe, the ordered universe. But actually, if you think about it, we, we talk about the ordered universe... And that's why you can do science, isn't it? That's the reason you can do science. That's why you can discover laws and properties and patterns, because you can do science. Because the universe is ordered. But yet, when we come to a, 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 an issue, we say, oh, that's chance. We, we say, well, well, obviously the world is ordered, but how did it get there? Well, it just did. I think, well, maybe, like the first scientists who were Christians said, maybe the ordered world and science emerged from the sense there is an ordered world with an ordered creator. That's why we can do science. But no, we don't do that. We're wise and we say we know better. But actually with morality, morality, we do the same thing. Who decides what's right and wrong? Very interesting. Who decides what's right and wrong? Turn to the person next to you and say, who decides what's right and wrong? In our culture. You'll all say God because you're all good Christians, won't you? But in our culture, who decides what's right and wrong? Okay, let's have some answers. Who decides what's right and wrong? We do with our laws. Okay, so let's pull that back. How do politicians decide what laws to put in place? They kind of get evidence and vote. Why, why do they vote certain ways? What, I, I mean, I bet, at this point I'm in danger because I get, can get very political very quickly, so I won't. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, why, why do we make the laws we do? Why do we make the moral laws we do? We tend to make them, if we're honest, on public opinion. We tend to really make what the majority think is right and wrong. That's, if we're honest, we don't like to say, well, this is right because I say so, because that would be arrogant. But we kind of say, well, we kind of agree that this is right and wrong, so that's okay, and we'll make our laws on that basis. Tim Keller's brilliant in this kind of thing. He talks about this. Tim Keller's a, a preacher uh, who's written some stuff called uh, Romans for Everyone, I think it is, or Everyday Romans or whatever. Really good little books, easy to get your head around. He writes this. It's very arrogant to say... This is right or wrong because I say it is. When really what I mean is, this is right and wrong because society says it is. Then he takes an example. He says, so 300 years ago or three centuries ago, uh, most of Western society thought that uh, enslaving black Africans was right. That was, the co- that was the law. It was fine. You could do that. You could have a black slave. The slave was your possession. You could kill the slave, sleep with the slave, sell the slave. Our culture, 300 years ago, said that was right. Now, obviously, we all think, that's horrible. 
He goes on, was, was slavery right then? But not now. If there is no God, where are we to locate the authority, declare moral absolutes? Yet we believe in consciences and moral absolutes, but yet we refuse to believe in God. How do you decide if something's right and wrong? It works on sexual ethics, doesn't it? Is it right for you to have multiple sexual partners? Right and wrong. Who decides? Our culture would say, it's okay. Is it okay to sleep with your sister? Who decides if it's right and wrong? Our culture says, it's not okay. Is it okay to have sex with somebody of the same gender? Our culture says, it's okay. How are we deciding? We're deciding by really what we're saying is this is my opinion. So it's interesting, and we'll come back to sexual ethics, but it's interesting, how do we decide? We suppress the truth of God and we decide ourselves. We'll we'll be wise ourselves, thank you very much. Humanity is a long track record of doing that, and we're not going to labour this point, but right at the beginning of the story, Adam and Eve were tempted with saying, you knew God, they walked in the garden with God, created in God's image, walked in the garden with God, and they were tempted to believe a lie. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Uh, Paul kind of hints at that. Uh, they knew the Creator. They were the first creation. They changed the truth. The whisper was, you will be like God and you can decide. You can reject God. You'll be God instead. Adam and Eve, you'll be God instead. Humanity, you'll be God instead. And you can decide what's right and wrong. Have we been doing that? Of course we have. Homosexuality, you ask a pillar, you go to parts of, of Africa... It's still culturally very wrong. You go to parts of uh, San Francisco, what are you talking about? It's absolutely fine. Who's deciding whether it's right or wrong? It's very presumptuous of us as Westerners to say, well, the people in Africa are not very advanced, are they? So clearly they don't understand. But that's what you're saying. Who do we decide? We reject God. Reach out and takes God's place. God says this, perhaps talking about Adam and Eve, but talking about humanity, talking about the Romans, for although they knew God through creation, they neither glorified him as God nor gave him thanks. But their thinking became futile and their hearts became darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fooled and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images to look like human beings. We started to worship ourselves. Paul's argument is wrong thinking produces wrong doing. That the foolishness of suppressing the truth about Jesus' Lord leads to futile thinking, morally corrupt minds, darkened and foolish hearts. And so what happens is, they just do what they want. And so in Romans uh, 1.28 says, Just as they did not think it's worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, we're squashing that down. So God gave them over to a deprived mind, so they do know what's ought to be done. And then it seems like he, he, he really focuses in on sex. And, and, and you think, you know, sex is like the worst sin, isn't it? You know, you think, the way Christians carry on, you think it's the worst sin? If somebody sins sexually, man, that's bad news, yeah? And we bang on about sex and we think, and here's Paul, he's doing the same, he bangs on about sex. <laughs> and he seems to give immorality and homosexuals a particularly hard time. He talked, this, is, this stuff is like a bomb, isn't it? You chuck it in, I was like, boom. This, read some of the verses, said, Therefore God gave them over to sexual, sinful desires in their hearts, uh, to uh, sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, degrading their bodies with one another. He's just talking about having general sex around the place. 
And then he says, God gave them over to shameful lusts where even women exchanged natural sexual relationships with unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relationships with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in himself the due penalty of their errors. Gay relationships were part of Roman life. They were more, perhaps, a part of Roman life than they are part of Western 21st century life. This is a a picture of a... uh, I've cropped it very strategically. (laughs) But you can Google it. It's called the the Warren Cup. It's a a silver cup from Roman times, possibly from the Emperor Nero. It shows a, a, a figure with a laurel wreath on, so he would be the emperor having anal intercourse with another man. You flip the cup over, there's the emperor having anal intercourse with a young boy. That, it's called pedestry, was a part, a rite of passage in Roman and Greek culture. The first sex that young boys had was anal sex with an older man. That was the rite of passage. Nero was no different. Satanus, the historian recording Nero, says Nero went through a gay marriage ceremony. On one occasion, he was wore a, a woman's bridal gown and a veil. The marriage was consummated with wedding torch bearers standing around the marriage bed. As Cicero, this is uh, Satanus, says this, as, with, as Nero filled the palace, imitating the screams and moans of a young girl being deflowered. That's. Satanus writes, Nero tried to turn the boy Sporus into a girl by bloody castration. Paul's comments are directed at the emperor. He's not just talking to the people who are going to hear his letter. These Paul's comments are directed at the emperor, at the patricians, at the plebs, at the slaves, at everyone. He's saying these things are wrong. They're wrong. And, and, and as you say it, I think, man, I don't want to talk about homosexuality. You know, will they send me to prison? You know, if we put this out on the podcast, what will people think? Oh, it's that church, that rabid church. But Paul puts these dangerous and controversial statements right in there. And you can feel it go bang. Paul is clear, homosexual sin is sin. He says it's shameful and perversion of natural relationships. But if you look at it, Paul does not insult gay people themselves. His line of argument, listen to this, is that this is the outworking of a culture that's rejected God. Paul isn't part of the modern debate about whether gay attraction is a matter of nature or nurture. He says it's neither. It's actually not actually about the individual and their moral choices. Because I know lots of people, I know there's a guy who leads a church in Oxford uh, called Vaughan Roberts who describes himself as having gay sexual attraction. Now has he become the the deprived, lustful, kind of depraved person in his thinking while all the rest of us are fine? No. What what Paul is saying is the culture's rotten. The whole tree's rotten right to the core and this is an outworking of it. Being gay feels right to homosexuals. But it's not an expression of their individual sin. It's an expression of our sin, the whole culture of our sin. 
that worships anything but God. And what happens is Paul even talks about the way the culture goes. He says, not only do they do these things, but they approve of those who practice them. But Paul's not saying that homosexual sin is worse than heterosexual immorality. Was Nero sinning less when he raped a vestal virgin? Was Nero sinning less when he had sex with his mother? Was Nero sinning less when he aborted his own child by kicking his wife in the stomach till she died? No. It's just the product of a society without God. Now you can hear actually the Romans feeling, oh, yes. And some of the Jews are about time. It's about time somebody stood up here and had a go at those gays. It's about time somebody had a go at all those sexually immoral people. It's about time. But actually, Paul is doing something very clever. He lists a whole lot of other stuff. He says, well, what about this? They're filled with every kind of wickedness. So it's a shocking list, isn't it? <laughs> this is not lifting someone. We will get there somewhere good in the end. And up, it's, they're filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and corruption. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful, invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no faithfulness, no love, no mercy. Is this the Romans only? It's us, isn't it? You turn to the tabloid newspapers in a typical week and the only ones that won't make that list is God-haters and disobedient to parents because they're not really newsworthy because it's so common. This is the human condition. Look in the mirror and what do you see? Greed, corruption, envy, murder, strife, deceit, anger, gossip, slander, insolence, arrogance and brothel and that's just me on a good day. Paul's strong language about sexual immorality And homosexuality, he's springing a trap for the morally self-righteous and finger-pointing Jews. As I said, they're in the audience, yes, about time. But actually, he's already setting them up for a fall. Because through his little tirade about Roman culture, he uses this little phrase. They exchanged the glory of God for a lie. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And actually... If you knew your uh, Jewish Bible, Psalm 106 has that exact phrase, and it's a whole psalm about how the Jews messed up. He talks, he says in Psalm 106, it says, in verse 19, it says, At Sinai, that's where Moses got the Ten Commandments, they made a calf and worshipped an idol. Oh, they worship animals. Yeah, Paul's mentioned that. An idol cast from metal. They exchanged the glorious God for an image of a bull that eats grass. They forgot the God who saves them. Paul lines up the Jewish religious homophobes and says this. Therefore, you who pass judgment, you've got no excuse. You pass judgment on someone else. At whatever point you judge them, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. You know that God's judgment against such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human, pass judgment on them, yet you do the same things. Do you think you'll escape God's judgment? At this point, everybody's like where we are. 
oh, this is really not nice. <laughs> We're all in the crosshairs. I don't think Paul's trying to do a sniper thing and going, homosexual, boof. Sexually immoral, boof. Envious, boof. You know, like a sniper taking people down in the band of brothers. No, he's saying, guys, you're all there. Later on in the book, he's going to say, no one's righteous, no, not one. And then he really, really gets really fun, doesn't he, and says, and you're all going to be judged. He says, for the wrath of, verse 18, he says, for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness, that's the reactions of no God, and wickedness, that's the behavior with people, of people. And it says in verse 2.5, storing up wrath for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. We don't like the idea of being judged, do we? We don't like it. Uh, but actually, no, when we think about it, we, we kind of do like it. Because we kind of like movies where the bad guy gets it. Don't we? We, we like those kind of movies. So I'm watching Paul Dark at the moment. Is, is anyone? At? There is a love story, but there's also a subplot of political drama and kind of radical socialism breaking through. So I'm in with him. And, uh, and, it, and what happens is a really nasty guy in there who's kind of nouveau riche and has got money and he's trying to kind of manipulate uh, Paul Dark and his missus. And you want him to get it. You want him to get it. If you like action movies, you know, superhero movies, you want the bad guys to get it, don't you? We're okay with judgment. What we're not okay with is judgment when it's us. <laughs> so what we do is we say, whoa, 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 hang on, God. And what we do is, because we're truth suppressors, we don't like this, we, we think, well, let's, let's create a different narrative about God. We portray God in our own distorted image. We see him as greedy. Him as jealous, not me, him. Him as angry, not me. Him as arrogant, boastful. And on a bad day, it was partial to a bit of murder. Come on, sinners, let's take them out. We tend to make God like that, don't we? We paint a picture of God as the bad guy. Paul, how dare you? We're good guys. We're in church, aren't we? Paul paints a different picture of God's Righteous anger, that's what wrath means. It's God's judgment is not arbitrary. It's not like he's on a, a bad day. He doesn't blow into fits of rage and think, right, I just feel like smiting a few. I don't know if you've seen uh, the film Bruce Almighty. And uh, with, uh, who's it? Jim Carrey. And he's going, come on God, do some smiting. Can we do some smiting? Some thunderbolts, some earthquake. You know, and it's like, yes, who can we smite today? Yes, Josh, boof, you deserve it, because I know what you're doing. You know, it's like, whoa, hang on, God. <laughs> God is God's judgment is not arbitrary. It's not based on rage, but it's just and true. Paul says this, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. His judgment will be revealed according to what each person's done. It's just, it's fair. God's judgments flow from love. Oh, come on, Howard, you're really scraping the barrel to put him on a good side. No, really, Paul says it here. What have we put here? God's judgments are based on uh, love. They're not, they're not harsh and vindictive. They flow from love that is patient and kind. Paul says, uh, we show contempt for the riches of his. Who's his? God's kindness. Forbearance and patience. Not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to change your life. I'd like to be a parent full of kindness and forbearance and patience. 
flying off the handle, arguing with my wife. <laughs> you know, I'd like to be full of kindness and forbearance. It's not, it's not God that's got the problem with kindness, forbearance and patience, it's us. But God has kind and forbearance because he wants you to repent. God doesn't turn a blind eye to our sin, but he puts up with it because he wants to save us from the rotten core that's going to bring the whole tree down. God's judgment is sometimes silent. I think this is interesting. As I said, we sometimes think of God's judgment as coming in lightning bolts and earthquakes. But actually, sometimes it's unrecognized. It talks about men commit shameful acts with other men and receive in themselves the due penalty for their error. They didn't kind of know that they were getting judged, but it was happening. Now, don't go away and say, AIDS, that's God's judgment on the gays. It's not what we're saying. <laughs> we're not saying that. But what I'm saying is there is a time when actually God is judging you, you don't recognize it. Phil Moore says this. Phil Moore's a, a, a church leader in the network of churches that we're part of. He says, when promiscuous people contract infections, you think, yeah, yeah, all the self-righteous ones think, yeah, yeah. When greedy people are dissatisfied, when liars lose their jobs, when gossips lose their friends, they're really to come to the conclusion that God might be judging them. He might be, he might not. Because you don't know, it's unrecognized. They explain away his judgment as natural cause it or reason, or reason to blame God for fair, unfairly ruining their lives. I think we had it up there earlier. Proverbs 19, Solomon says, A man's own foolishness ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. And God's judgment is sometimes to do nothing. The scariest form of God's judgment is God's judgment is sometimes silent. It says, Paul says three times, God gave them over. The scariest form of judgment sometimes is God's decision is just to stay silent and let you get on with it. So you notice, perhaps often you notice it when church leaders fall. You think, is that God's judgment? Have they just let a thought become an action, a wrong thinking to become wrong behavior, and then they do wrong behavior, and instead of the God saying, stop, just lets them get on with it. Let's it blow. I heard one person talk about this. It's as if all our sins are strapped around us like explosives in a suicide vest. And God sometimes just let us explode. I look at my life and think, wow, if, if that had been public, if that thought, that deed had been public, blam. Thomas Mann, Thomas Watson, sorry, not Thomas Mann, he was a political writer. Thomas Watson, a Puritan preacher from a few hundred years ago, this said this. The greatest judgment God lays upon a man, that's the culture, but or a woman, we'd say in our culture, upon humanity, in this life is to let them sin without control. 
when the Lord's displeasure is most severely kindled against a person, he does not say, I will bring a sword or suffering on this man. I'll just let him sin on. Whoa. So we might be thinking, our sin has really got no consequences. As we sit on our nice sofas and we enjoy our fairly nice lives, we don't know. Is God letting me just carry on to a massive fall? Is God judging me for my pride or my greed, my insecurity? Is God just judging me because I've suddenly people say this and this and this about me? Is he doing that to you? You don't really know. But Paul makes it clear that actually, at the end, his judgment may be slow decay, creeping dissatisfaction, the slow unraveling of your relationships or finances. That might be God's judgment. But if everything's fine, there will be judgment. It will come. Hey, this is great, isn't it? If you feel bad about this, that's exactly what Paul wants you to feel. Because he's going to give you a solution, and I'm going to dig you out of the hole in a sec. There's a guy called Martin Luther. Not Martin Luther King. Black civil rights movement, power to him. Martin Luther, a German monk. It's about, is it 500 years? About 500 years next year. He reads Romans and he hates the book. I hate this book. He says, I hated the word, the righteousness of God. I've been taught about God's active justice, but this righteousness that punishes sinners and the unrighteous, and he hated it. He said, I lived as a monk without reproach, but I felt I was a sinner before God, and it was the most, I had the most disturbed conscience. I did not love, he says. Indeed, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. Secretly, if not blasphemy, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. Yet, he says, I clung to dear Paul. So he hates this letter, but he clings to it. I had a great yearning to know, what do you really mean? It says, finally, by the mercy of God, as I meditated day and night, I paid attention to the context of the words. In the righteousness of God, in it, sorry, the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, those who through faith, those who through faith is, sorry, I can't read his um, 18th century. (laughs) He basically said, the righteousness of God is revealed, is written, those, the righteous will live by faith. Then I began to stand that the righteousness of God is what is meant as a righteous gift of God, namely by faith. And this then is the meaning that the righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel. The righteousness, he says, is the mercy by which God justifies me by faith. As it's written, the righteous will live by faith. And I felt, I felt as I was altogether born again, and I entered paradise as if through its gates. Sorry, I read that clumsily. But basically what he's saying is I hated this passage. 
I hate this passage because it made me feel bad. It made me feel terrible. It made me feel God was, I was angry with God. It made me feel like, why is God punishing me? I'm a monk. Why is he having a go at me? Why doesn't he have a go at them? But he reads it and he says, the righteousness of God is revealed. From heaven, the righteousness of God is revealed. And I think that, and we'll find this as we go through Romans, that actually he realizes that something wonderful happens on the cross. At the cross, the righteousness of God is revealed. This is wonderful end to the story. Because what happens is the acts should come to the root of human society and we should all go down because of our rotten core. But what happens is the righteousness of God is revealed. It's a person, Jesus Christ, who's the righteousness of God. He's been revealed on earth. He's come and said, this is what God's like. Nobody can point the finger at Jesus and say he's greedy, pernicious and anger and flows off the handle. This is what God is like, loving, kind, truthful. And here's Jesus, the one who committed no sin. The one who's done nothing wrong. You know how it plays because you've heard this before, but don't lose the impact of it. That what happens is Jesus who knew no sin, he was nailed to the cross. His his body was broken in two. His blood was shed. God poured out judgment. It should have been us. It really should have been us. Not just a few gays and Nero. It should have been us. But he pours out judgment on Jesus, the righteous one. We're going to preach it later on when we come back to it. But he says the, the just justifies us. In other words, God does what's right and makes us right. When we break bread... You need to come, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you feel like you're very Roman in your culture, probably won't be here this morning, or whether you feel you're very Jewish in your culture, very spiritual, we'll have a go at them next week. But when, if, whether you feel like that, you've got to understand that actually you're just the same. You're just the same. You're part of that broken, fallen culture, that tree that's going to come crashing down in the last day. And when you eat this bread, you declare God's righteous one has been judged on the cross for me. And that shows how incredibly righteous God is. How just and true and kind he is. When you eat this bread and drink this cup, you celebrate that. And if you've never, ever done that, you need to say, I'm becoming a Christian. But actually... You need to almost become a Christian all the time. You need to once again say, God, who's worthy of this? And now a righteousness from God is revealed. And it comes as a free gift just because we believe in Jesus. That's brilliant. Why don't you stand with me, people? Just ask yourself the question. How have you been suppressing the truth of God to live like you want? To decide what's right and wrong for yourself. How have you begun on that slippery slope to immorality by what you look at, what you do, what you talk about, what you listen to? How have you sat there in your proud seat pointed the finger at this broken world 
and think you're not to blame. You who judge, we do the same things. Lord, we stand here at this moment knowing that we're sinners. From a sinful culture, a culture without God. But Lord, we thank you that your declaration, your gospel, that Jesus is Lord has come to us. So we come and bow the knee to you. We come and throw off our culture that so easily entangles and we say we're going to live the Jesus Lord culture. Forgive us our smug self-righteousness, our older brother pride. Forgive us our prodigal wanderings. We come to your feast, O God. The righteous one judged so that we might be righteous in your sight. Wonderful truth. Amen. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.